Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dr. Neil Soss, the Vice Chairman of Global Fixed Income and Economics Research at Credit Suisse, who joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Let's start, if we could, Dr. Soss, with this news uh, out of London uh, this morning, uh, if I could, Dr. Soss, looking at it, what they're doing with their capital buffers here. What does this say about the Brexit process and the BOE's attitude toward uh, what's happening with Brexit? Oh, I think they would have been doing this yeah, either otherwise. way. Uh, I think it's a pretty sensible uh, uh, substitute for having volatile interest rates Instead, that is cyclically a volatile interest rate, instead you have a cyclically varying capital requirement mm -hmm. so that when banks are tempted to make the bad loans in good times, you hold them back. Conversely, when bad times arrive and everybody gets more nervous than is socially useful, you relax those standards a bit. Um, Brexit's a more, uh, what shall I say, uh, slow-moving, ongoing process. It's not cyclical per se. Uh, so I don't think this is a particular response to, to Brexit, but Brexit sits in the background and colors every decision that has to be made in the UK. Yeah, when you, when you look at what Mark Carney is, is doing at this point, how he's processing all of this, is, is it a sort of wait-and-see approach? Is there more that uh, he could be doing, more that he, he has been doing here in light of that slow-moving process that you, you describe? Um, sort of what, what, what role is he playing right now? What, what's the Bank of England doing at this point? Well, it's not the Bank of England's Personal job. responsibility. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not their job to, to be involved in this in a direct way. They're responding to the symptoms uh, or, or to the consequences of the Brexit process. One of those uh, is a weaker sterling than you otherwise would have had. Mm. And since a lot of the standard of living of, of an island nation is, is imported, uh, that weaker sterling gives rise to a certain amount of inflation. And they have to make a judgment about what certain amount is required, so to speak, for the Brexit process, and what amount is too much and therefore should be resisted. That's, that's their role in it, so to speak. Um, with respect to financial, the financial sector, the financial industry, which is, after all, a big piece of, of the London economy, mm -hmm. they have some opinions, if you will, uh -huh. but no particular authority in that respect. That's part of the negotiation that the governments are doing, not the central banks. We're talking with Dr. Neil Soss uh, of Credit Suisse right now. And Mario Draghi speaking earlier today in Portugal, talking about the continued need uh, for stimulus uh, in light of the, the inflation, the inflation that we're seeing in Europe. How hard a case is it for him to make, not to be talking about tapering, but to continue to talk about uh, the, the need for, for stimulus in Europe right now? Well, unemployment uh, in, in the euro area has been coming down, yes. as it has in a lot of other places. That's good. Uh, on the other hand, we talk about being near full employment somewhere in the fours. Uh, Japan maybe thinks of itself as being near full employment somewhere in the twos. Uh -huh. uh, but Europe is in the nines. So there's plenty of room yet, plenty of run room, particularly because inflation, of course, is very far away from anything that's target from their point of view or irritating to the body politic. 
So I'm not sure there was needful, so to speak, to talk about being stimulative, but I think it's pretty self-evident that any kind of true withdrawal, a tightening of policy, uh, is uh, is uh, likely to be a delayed or or a la- a later, not sooner. And frankly, I don't see how anybody does a whole lot of tightening until the Fed mm. has gone much farther than it has so far, because there is, after all, international yeah. arbitrage too. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, live on radio. David Gurr, good morning. Good morning, Tom. A little bit of news slow. Huh, Just David? a little bit, yeah. Absolutely overwhelming. <laughs> Thanks to our team that really have been juggling since hours ago I, I with love Mario Draghi. Mark Carney and Margaret Vestier on the screen. There's some competition among the uh, European principals there this morning. Yeah, I mean, just uh, just crazy in Europe. <laughs> and of course, Chair Yellen speaking in London at 1 p.m. I yes. think we'll be doing that across Bloomberg we Radio will. and yeah. television as well. David, what's amazing is we really begin with Dr. Sass today, a look back of 10 years to the beginning of the financial crisis. Dr. Sass was hugely important. In, in just trying to figure out the third week of August 2007 mm-hmm. and then the fourth week of August 2007. <laughs> they let, let them take one day off and then we got into September <laughs> of 2007. Go back there and discuss ring fence. Mm-hmm. What were we ring fencing? Where did that phrase come from? Well, we didn't in the event do that. We talked about doing it and we didn't get around to doing it in any official sort of capacity for, for rather a while. But the idea that I had in, at the time was that the essence of, of what had gone wrong in financial markets was an imbalance, if you will, between certain mortgage-related assets and the way in which they were held. If those things had been owned by people, so to speak, then, okay, it's a pity. Sometimes you lose. But they weren't owned. They were borrowed. That is to say, they were supported on the other side of the balance sheet by overnight money, very short-term obligations, which people thought of quite literally as money. Problem with those short-term obligations is the only reason that you're willing to lend somebody money overnight is you figure if you want to, you can get out tomorrow. And it was the effort to get out that then caused the collateral values to go down and so forth and so on. And so what I had in mind at at the time that you and I had, had talked about then was, well, why don't we just somehow buy up those assets, hold on to them, and let that short-term stuff roll off. And in particular, at the time, I was sort of hoping we could make a grand bargain with the, with the pension programs around the country, give those assets, after all, these are long-dated assets, mortgages against houses, mm-hmm. and houses last a long time and so forth, in return for some kind of grand bargain about pension obligations. Well, that was way too ambitious to be achieved, and it took another year anyway before TARP came along, mm-hmm. which... When you think about the, the words you know, the, that gave rise to that acronym, it was supposed to be about holding on to those assets, um, taking them off the market for a period of time, which, of course, is not precisely how it was used in the event. And I continue to be worried about the pensions. <laughs> I continue to be worried about the imbalance uh, between what promises were made and the ability to, to fulfill those. Um, it's not terribly mm. different in character from the potholes. In, in, in the streets. It's deferred maintenance. I promised to do something, and I didn't do it this year because I needed the cash for other purposes, and next year will come when yeah. it comes, and then the future arrives. Very quickly here, do you have a, a, a view on our health care debate? And I say that, Dr. Sausen, that it's 17% yeah. of the pie. Do you have a view on this? Well, I, I think it's pretty self-evident that that's a very large fraction by global standards. So something about that <clears throat> needs to, to be brought under control. 
I'm a little concerned about the idea that Medicaid is the vehicle for bringing it under control because it, 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 I think, really winds up transferring the burden from the federal government, which actually is capable of of an elastic or expansive budget, to the state and local governments who are not capable of yeah. having an elastic budget. So I'm not sure that it solves well, that larger problem. Why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? You, we've ringed fence him for the half hour. Very true. Neil Sauce here with, uh, with Credit Suisse and our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. Let's talk a bit about infrastructure, uh, if we could. The White House has had these theme weeks over the last month or so. There was an infrastructure week and, of course, uh, other events interceded. I don't think the White House was able to focus on that as much as uh, they'd like to. And, of course, on Capitol Hill, the focus now squarely on Healthcare, maybe a little bit on uh, tax reform. Where, where, do you th- where do you see things going? How important is getting a big fiscal package through? What do we know about what the White House uh, would like to see and what the odds are of getting something through? Well, forgetting the cyclical question of are we at full employment and yeah. can we afford more literally at this moment? But on an ongoing basis, uh, we want a trend growth of GDP higher than the 2 percentage that we've been achieving of late. Um, to create that, you can't manufacture a workforce. It takes a long time, 20 years or so, even if you had an increase in fertility. It takes 20 years to get workers. Um, so you got to have more productivity, more capital uh, available for the workers. And I think the infrastructure is, is kind of a self-evident uh, uh, way of achieving that. Uh, as a culture, we seem to be pretty good at building things, mm-hmm. but not so good at maintaining things. And so it's, it's the maintaining piece, I suspect, that is, is pretty consequential right now. Uh, but you could use a certain amount of, of, of new as well. So the question is, how do you finance that in a context where the state and local governments historically have been the main conduit, if you will, for, for infrastructure activity? They've got plenty of issues of their own, significantly the pension issues. Um, nominal growth is not so terrific, so their revenues are not so terrific. How, how do you organize that? And I think there's a very real role for the federal government in that regard, whether that's public-private partnerships or uh, more generous matching programs, and there are all sorts of ways of achieving it. But I do think infrastructure would make a very big difference for the next generation's future. Is there money there for this? I, I remember a couple of years back pitching a series of stories on uh, infrastructure reform and uh, an editor take me, take me aside saying when a bridge collapses in the Twin Cities, say, there is widespread interest in the maintenance of infrastructure. But uh, when that's not happening, yep. when you and I acknowledge that a bridge is old or a road has problems with it, uh, it's, it's hard to get people to stay interested in, in, in the subject. Is that true of investors uh, as well? Is it going to take some initiative from the government to get investors who have money to, to want to put it into infrastructure projects? Well, you have sovereign wealth funds and pension plans and so forth who have very long-duration liabilities, and they need long-duration assets. So that's part of the yield curve story. They've been bidding up the prices of long bonds, but that bids down their returns. They need more returns than that. So infrastructure might be a pretty good marriage. Let's talk about this. It's a little bit of jargon here. The duration is, call it the uh, calculated maturity of a mature bond, et cetera, Everybody wants yield. And so what do you mean? That they go out and they buy longer-term bonds when they really don't want to? Uh-huh. Yeah, they're buying... They buy a 10-year instead of a 7-year. They, they're buying longer-dated securities because they offer an increment of yield, but also because it matches the liability that they've got. Yeah, but this the real a, return of that said piece doesn't match that. 
the hope and expectation. That, that is the very real problem in all of this. There's an accounting convention that says that you discount your liabilities by observed market interest rates. And so when interest rates go down, it makes your liabilities look higher. Therefore, you need even more return on the assets. You need more mm -hmm. assets. And, of course, this thing chases itself, as we've been observing, um, uh, to this kind of an outcome. Well, so, so one way to, to change that would be to find a long-lived a long asset that would have a higher right. return. And that's part of the story of infrastructure. Dr. Sasser, begging you come back in August. Please, please. We've got a 10-year anniversary of financial crisis. Love to have you back in August or into September as well. Neil Sass is with Credit Suisse. told us he would not come back on the show unless the Milwaukee Brewers were in first place. We welcome David Harrow of Wisconsin <laughs> and Chicago and Harris Associates right now. David Harrow, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Yes, and how good they are looking, aren't <laughs> well, they? Well, they're looking very good. Chicago, the Chicagos are doing better, I would note, in the last couple of weeks. Oh, so. the White Sox, I think, are looking not there. They're looking awfully, awfully yeah. wobbly. They are wobbly, yeah. but the Cubs play in the same division, Mr. Harrow, as the Milwaukee National League Brewers, so the Cubs are catching up. This market is overvalued, same as the predictions on the Milwaukee Brewers. How does our audience <laughs> buy the P.E. multiples of 2017, David? Well, it depends where you're looking, because though there are some areas that appear stretched in valuation, there are other areas that still look rather attractive. And, and this is the beauty of the position that we're in. It's kind of bottom-up, long-term value investors. We have the whole globe to look for. And we have uh, plenty of companies that really meet our value criteria. I've spoken in the past about still the value that's available in the European financial sector and some of the industrials, even some of the material companies. Um, we are finding it difficult to find things in emerging markets. Uh, we have a, a little bit of a waiting there. And in the United States, uh, you know, there's still a few areas where we uh, have, have uh, you know, decent opportunities to make money. Now, the U.S. P.E. multiple, the S&P, is around 17 times. It's, I wouldn't say, given, given we seem to be growing earnings double digits, it's not expensive, but it's not cheap. That's, that's, there's no fire sales uh, if you look at the broad U.S. market, but there's still opportunities, and that's what investors do. They look for opportunities, look for companies that fit uh, their investment criteria. Give us a, a sense of what you, uh, you're looking at now, where you see opportunity, what fits your, your investment criteria. Yeah, I mentioned the European financials, and if you got to take a little step back in, in history, three or four years ago, the investing community was obsessed with Greece and the impact that had on uh, sovereign rates. Uh, remember, it wasn't all that too long ago when you heard a lot of prognosticators talking about a default in Spain, a default in Portugal, a default in Italy, and maybe even France. Uh, the low interest rates and negative rates of Europe certainly have hurt the financial sector. The slow growth has hit the financial sector. And now what we have is the Greece issue appears. I don't think we've heard anything about Greece in a year, even though I think they recently got a debt payment. Um, European growth is picking up. Uh, loan losses are, are down. Costs 
are down. Capital is, is strong for most of the big European <clears throat> banks. And prices haven't moved all that much. I think the market still doesn't really yeah. believe. And perhaps it's these low interest rates that Europe still yeah. is experiencing. And now let's but review. I think this is a good opportunity. Now, the opportunity of reviewing Mr. Harrow's track record is uh, 18% in banks. He owns a whole bunch of banks I can't pronounce. Uh, and, and David Gurr, I might, might point out in the last 12 months, Mr. Harrow's in the 98th percentile, 98th percentile. <laughs> and in the last five years, he's slacked off. He's in the 91st percentile. We call that upper decile. You have to pass the CFA to just figure out that's upper decile. This is rarefied air for young Arrow. David. Uh, David, let me ask you about uh, what what you take away from what we saw in Italy here earlier this week, uh, the, the intervention that we've seen into these two Italian uh, banks. What does it tell you about the, the Italian banking sector or more broadly about banking in Europe? Well, this, this was a good thing. And by the way, something not so similar, but there was a bailout in Spain as well. The European banking system finally has found a way to proactively address issues which in the past have lingered. Now they are being a lot more proactive. Uh, this Italian banking situation was the perfect example where actually one of our banks, Intesa Sao Paulo, um, took over two ailing Veneto banks. Um, and it looked like a good deal for Intesa, but it would have been a worse deal for the government if Intesa would not have done it. I mean, Intesa estimates maybe it would have cost the government over 10 billion euros. But this was a good deal because basically Intesa was allowed to absorb the better parts of the business for one euro. There, you know, there will be some loan losses, and I'm sure what they absorbed. But Intesa is a strong bank, very well provided for. So this was a very good deal for Intesa. But more importantly, it shows that finally we're seeing movement and proactive, uh, proactive behavior in the European banking system, which. Then the European banking system on sound footing, it will allow more credit expansion, which fuels economic growth. So this is a, a big positive for Europe. Is, is this what we saw in Italy and indeed what we saw with Banco Popular in, in Spain a couple of weeks ago, a new model for, for bailing out banks? Do you think is it something that's going to be replicated going forward? Yeah, well, hopefully, David, hopefully it won't have to be replicated too much because we don't want banks always need to be bailed out. But when they do need it, it is important to address it rapidly and quickly so as not to impact confidence in the economic system and in the banking system because confidence kills the system. You know, if, if people are afraid to make deposits and if they're afraid of the security of their assets, you know, this is not a good thing. And so... What we hope for is, uh, yes, that if, if there is a problem, they get addressed without a, a ton of squabbling. I was a little surprised that the European Union didn't view this as state aid, which, of course, is kind of a no-no. And, you're, and the, the bank's uh, lenders mm-hmm. uh, were allowed to be basically made whole. So, you know, I think it's, it's really important in banking issues to react swiftly. And this is yeah. what we're finally starting to see. David, I, I think we treasure your opinion maybe away from your expertise. You own a lot of banks, boring banks. Google is not a David Harrow kind of entity, I would suggest. But you do spend a lot of time in Europe. You're hugely Europhilic, I would say. Please comment on this competition debate where the EU is going after Google, where Wisconsin is not going after Google. Does it show that the European Union just doesn't understand modern capitalism? Well, 
I think there is a question whether the European Union understands modern capitalism. I don't know if this is the best example to demonstrate that. But, I mean, clearly I have problems with the European regulators and over-regulators and mandates and all of this stuff, everything from naming cheeses to directing what board directors should look like. I have big problems with this. The Google question is very sticky. Now, we hold Google. We hold Google in some of our global accounts, some of our domestic accounts, is because we think it has an extremely strong, virtuous business uh, um, setup where the larger you get, the better you get, the more competitive you get, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are antitrust issues. Of course there are when, when there's just no competition or very little or no competition. There are also privacy issues. You know, some people make this argument that Google should be regulated more like a monopoly if it is one. Um, I, I'm actually more concerned about privacy issues, just as an aside, almost as a non-investor, as a person of the world, than I am of you know the, the competitive issues. But you know, you're always going to have differences in how sovereigns view regulation. I mean, I just read today that sure, the sure. Germans are going to do something with emission testing, and you well, just don't have. You'll never have a unified. You'll never have a unified globe as far as regulation, That's which true. makes it difficult for global businesses. By the way, this any yeah. global business has to pay attention yeah. to the rules and regulations of where they operate. Very, very quickly here. Do you own Google? <clears throat> do you own Google, we, David? And not not personally, but we, it's it's owned in some of our global accounts and some of our Oakmark domestic accounts. We hold court with David Harrow of Oakmark Harris Associates as we look at value internationally. Uh, David, I want to pick on one stock, Lloyd's. You got a bunch of European banks. I guess Lloyd's <clears throat> is a European bank, but they're really in the United Kingdom. We got all the Brexit news. The world's coming to an end. <clears throat> Have courage. Why do you own Lloyd's? If you look at Lloyd's uh, historically, it has been one of the premier banks in the United Kingdom. It's basically just a commercial bank, no investment bank attached to it. Right after the great financial crisis, they made a huge mistake. They bought HBOS, uh, Halifax Building Society. Huge, huge mistake because of the bad loan book. They required a government bailout. Um, we actually sold our shares in Lloyd's shortly thereafter. Good, good but call. after the. After the government bailout and injection of equity and new management, we went back in, especially at a significantly lower price, and we thought, all oh, the bad news is in this. And now they're finally attacking the bad debts, the bad loans, and they're going to be able to focus on their core. And that's where we are today. It's a company that focuses on high net worth, small businesses, small corporates. It has a nice niche. Yeah. It's an extremely high-quality uh, credit book. Um, and it and it just trades at extremely attractive valuation levels, given their low cost, right. high spreads. By the way, their interest, average interest rate spread is over two hundred fifty. Okay, so it's like a chemical bank redux. <clears throat> David Gura, you're too young to remember this, but there's a bank called Chemical Bank, which is sort of what Mr. Harrow just described. Do you own this dog for people to figure out it's worth something, or do you own Lloyd's Bank because it's an M and A takeout candidate? No, we own it because it's. I don't. I doubt it's an M and A takeover candidate. It's always possible, but I doubt it. We own it because of our belief in its ability to generate a good earning stream uh, over the future. And given the price we're paying today, you know, for this basically nine times earnings, it yields. Yeah, it's a very safe yield of almost six percent, and and that dividend's going up even higher. 
So we, we own it because it represents good value. We're buying a good, safe yeah. uh, income stream. Notwithstanding what might happen in the United Kingdom, we think they're prepared for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. David Gura, uh, one-year dividend growth rate, 10.9%. That gets your attention. David, let me ask you about the regulatory landscape. I was talking with Bill Cohen yesterday about his latest piece in Vanity Fair, looking at uh, all of the Goldman Sachs alumni who are in this administration uh, now and picking up on some distance when it comes to uh, what banks should be like, what regulation uh, should be like. It seems like they're still trying to, to figure a lot of that out. Do you have a clear sense from this administration of how it regards the banks, what it wants to see uh, when it comes to regulating the banks? Was that 150-page document from the Treasury Secretary at all illuminating to you? Well, I did have a conversation with, with a member of Congress just recently who was on the Senate Banking Committee. And this is the kind of the question I asked him about the administration. And he seems to think that they have a very good, strong grasp on what needs to be done to facilitate uh, regulatory change. Now, we need regulation. There is no doubt about that. But clearly, the regulation today has gone overboard, overboard that is too complex, too complicated. And it makes it very, very difficult to follow. We need simple, transparent regulation. We need regulation, but it needs to be done correctly. And it was, you know, and from the things I'm seeing, I think they're taking the right steps. But th- this needs to be done. Dodd-Frank was an overdoing. You know, when you overdo a correction, it becomes a mistake. And the pendulum on regulation has, has swung too far. You know, these banks and financial institutions uh, can't continually be burdened, or they won't do what they're supposed to do. They are supposed to be the oil in in the financial system, in the in the economy. There, it's the oil that makes commerce take place. And if you muck it up, the oil doesn't flow. You don't have lending, and you need lending for growth, as I mentioned earlier. What's the, the first thing that you would change when, when it comes to, to Dodd-Frank, when it comes to the, the overregulation that you, that you describe? From, from your perspective, what's the, the greatest misstep? What needs to be scaled back? Well, there is just so much compliance and reporting. Every single thing you do has to be reported, and all these compliance officers. And it makes people afraid to do things. Um, and so you have to really go through the whole compliance and reporting process. We have, we have higher capital requirements today. That's good, because perhaps the re- capital requirements in the past were low. Where we failed in the past is the banks have had too low of capital, and they were allowed to make loans, and this was you know, part of the Federal Reserve's problem. Of course, this is one of the causes of the great financial crisis. They were encouraged to make bad loans because those loans were going to be packaged. Well, we have this problem basically addressed and solved. So now do we need layers and layers of compliance and reporting for everything you do? Um, It just gums things up. It it makes reaction time slow. David, great to speak with you, as always. That's David Harrow joining us. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. David Gurr, why don't you bring in our, our, our next guest on fishing? <laughs> we were just talking about his trip up to uh, Maine. David Kotak joins us now, the co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. He's here uh, on his way back from Maine in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Great to 
Great to see you. Great to speak with you again. Nice to be here, David. I wanted to bring a container of black flies to Tom <laughs> Keene, but I, but I couldn't get enough of them in the box. I was looking for the ice chest, but the black flies would have been good, right. uh, good as well. Let me just start by asking you what you're looking at these days. Where do you see opportunity? We were talking with David Harrow about uh, his sense of financials, European financials. When you, when you look at opportunities for investment right now, what excites you My, at this the, point? I do get excited, uh, not too excited about anything, yeah. but uh, we have chaos in Washington and entertainment and that dampens investment excitement but i like banks i really like the banks the big banks i use an etf which is kbwb mm. and the regional banks kre those two are outperforming the other financials the wide financial etf the symbols xlf and they are doing so for a reason they are getting deregulated they are getting relief from headwinds their profit margins are widening and i would say they have another built-in advantage. They can collect large amounts of U.S. dollar deposits at low cost and redeploy them. And the redeployment is easing, an easing burden, more profitable, and there is no other sector that can collect that mass of U.S. cash. So I'm, I think we're in a very long bank stock cycle. I'm overweight. And I haven't sold a share. Fair to say their time has come. I remember hearing uh, in the conversation about regulation a lot of concern and anger from community banks and regional banks about the, the burden of regulation. Uh, I say, has their time come? Because it seems like uh, there have now been steps legislatively and within the administration now to recognize that, that we hear talk now of bringing in more regional community bankers into, into the decision-making process. We hear talk in terms of bringing in personalities at all levels. Randy Quarles sure. at the top. Unknown individuals at the bottom. We see repeal or retraction or retracement or a diminution of regulatory headwinds. All those pieces together determine profitability of a bank. So profitability, which has been restrained in the face of a, a, a headwind, is reversing. And the headwind is reversing to a tailwind. It's a very powerful force for the sector, in our opinion. You but, have a sentence buried in your report, which is so Kotakian. This is the basic idea, folks. Is you always make in, me an Armenian. Uh, all, all of us who are in cash, and David was saying, have courage. Quote, a rising stock market through the entire decade. Hi. I was thunderstruck, David, Friday of the knee-jerk gloom reports throughout all the internet space. The doom and gloom was really off the chart. How do you get to a rising stock market through the entire decade? Suppose we have 2% growth, inflation rates under 2%, a liquid system in which is going to very slowly withdraw excess liquidity of a trillion or more. And therefore, a GDP growth rate without stresses, no liquidity crunch, and we don't get some outside shock like a war or something. What happens to asset prices? What happens to stock prices? Their earnings rise faster than the GDP. We are seeing earnings expansion now, and we don't have a headwind of higher interest rates or an inverted yield curve or the kinds of things which stop this. I think we can have 3,000 on the S&P. I put it in the report. By the end of the decade or a year after, sure, we'll have volatility, but I think we're headed higher. We've had three years of no earnings growth, 
and that looks to me to be over. Looking at your note, you talk about REITs a little bit, and of course there was the news here the last 24 hours or so that Warren Buffett took out a big stake. Berkshire Hathaway took out a 9.8% stake in store capital, uh, so a commercial realty uh, REIT. Uh, what's your hesitation when it comes to REITs right the, now? The big box retailers are under pressure. Mm -hmm. So you have a, a shrinking... Uh, in, in the entire country, you have this pressure on retailers because of the substitution of an electronic sale from a physical sale. That, to me, is a headwind for real estate. Vacant large spaces mean troubles for the communities they're in. They do not expand hiring. They, there's a headwind there. Mm -hmm. And so I worry about it. And the decision is, in the financials, I like the banks, but I don't like the REITs. What do you make of, of what we've seen from Amazon here over these last a couple of weeks? The, 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 the news that they're intending to, to buy Whole Foods here for $14 billion and, and plan to embrace a sort of bricks-and-mortar model as well. What does that tell you about where retail is headed, the fact that they're going in that direction? Well, Amazon did not buy a bookstore. Mm -hmm. bought a food store. And, and if you look at the technique of Amazon, we use Amazon. I don't know anybody in the world That's who right. doesn't use Amazon <laughs> for some form of shopping. And so we get think, the black flies to Maine. Well, that's right. No, I have never ordered black flies in Amazon. But, you know, I, I thought Amazon's move made sense. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see more of this kind of uh, unusual consolidation. We'll see yeah. it in the autos and self-driving cars. Sure. We're going to see it everywhere. You, you spend a lot of time talking to people with pots of money about getting courage to be in the market. I know you do it through ETFs and all that. Where's the courage come from right now? You mentioned the economic backdrop. But where is it from a corporate standpoint? Is it just a belief they're going to continue to distribute rising dividends and, and share buybacks? In the investors class that we talked to, which is the top 2 or 3% of income people in the country, so it's a, it's a very narrowed sample, yeah. but a large mass, they still are remembering the crisis. They are afraid of higher interest rates. They've been afraid of higher interest rates for the last decade almost, and they don't trust the stock price levels. And as long as they have that hesitancy, prices will rise. In the business community, and a lot of our clients are business people, they are uncertain about the tax code. They have no idea what the policy is going to be now out of Washington. And all of the outlook, which was positive six months ago, seems to be dissipated. So how do you know what to do, how to borrow for it, what to build, what to invest in, who to hire? You don't. And so there's a slowdown in decisions. I, I find businesses after businesses in our client base deferring decisions if they can because they are unsure. And that is another reason why the economy is so slow. Decision yeah. deferral. I, I, well, decision deferral, but mostly it's people saying, get me out. <laughs> And never finding the way to mentally get back into uh, this most unloved of all uh, bull markets. We'll continue with Mr. Kotak. Uh, David Gurr and I enjoying speaking with David Kotak of, of uh, Philadelphia and Florida with Cumberland Advisors. We've been talking up banks and his enthusiasm. Um, I see a headline here that we, we I guess we could fold right into our coverage with Mr. Kotak. Um, this just out from our Brendan Murray in Washington, IMF lowers U.S. economic growth forecasts for this year. We don't have much more than that. I don't know. That must be like a mid-year 
preening here. I didn't. Did you talk to Madame Lagarde this morning, David? <laughs> well, I think they just heard the interview we did four minutes ago and changed <laughs> yeah, their forecast. Yeah, could have been that. I mean, here we are with a whole Seattle slew of headlines like that, David Gerg at the, the horse Seattle thing. slew, yes. Into it, uh, Fed must well telegraph balance sheet reduction plans. They must accept moderate temporary inflation overshoot. Needs to cut tax rate, reduce taxpayer, on and on. It's a laundry list of Lagardian comments. Um, I'm looking for one that actually matters. There's care. There's case. I love this one. There's case for increasing U.S. infrastructure spending. That from Madame Lagarde this morning, David. Gore. She uh, safe to say not a believer in the three to four percent economic growth forecast that the White House has put into into place. Seriously, next year's growth outlook is a stunning two point one percent from prior two point five. David Kotak, seriously, that's a gloomy eighteen months forward view from the IMF. Well, it is, but that's where we are, and I I happen to agree with that. We've been around two percent growth. We don't think it gets very robust. We don't see this three four pine sky number from the White House, and we don't see an inflation pressure. It stays low. And this kind of characteristic may not be that robust, but it is very stable. And you see it in the VIX and volatilities because of it. Here's here's what all the IMF critics are going to say. Okay, there's the number, 2.1%. This year, same number for next year. That's gloomy. And then there's a single headline. Federal Reserve should continue gradually raising interest rates. How do you gradually raise interest rates when the inflation vector and, frankly, the IMF growth vectors going in the wrong direction? Well, that's it. I mean, the Fed, I don't think, looks very much at the IMF Fair. forecast Fair. I season. get that. But- yeah. so, so what does the Fed do? The Fed is trying to raise rates to get to whatever they think is normal. They had a free shot by the markets, which priced in the quarter point after months of rhetoric and moving and data. And they took the free shot. And if we'd have been voting on the Fed and the markets give you a free shot in basketball, you take it. And in central banking, you take it. If the markets set up another free shot for a quarter point between now and the end of the year, the Fed will take it again because they want to move away from the lower bound. And they will not take a shot and raise rates at the same time. They will start this very, very gradual balance sheet shrinkage. Dudley has used the word pause. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are. That says to me we're going to be in that mode for a couple more years. That is a very benign monetary environment. It is bullish for asset prices, which are tied to interest rates and monetary policy. And the second element here is there's this massive excess liquidity in excess reserves. And the Fed is pointing to financial conditions as being very easy and easing. What do you expect? If you create a trillion dollars, excess dollars, how would you ever expect financial conditions to tighten? They have to be easy. So you have a circular issue. Direction of causality is not clear, but the Fed is pointing to easing financial conditions as the reason it can raise rates by a quarter point. Do you understand, do you have a good understanding of why the the Fed is so keen to unwind this balance sheet? Uh, Now we had the Fed chair outlining what she intends to do, uh, indicating in some vague terms it's going to happen at some point this year. Have they made the rationale clear enough for doing it at this point? I don't know that the rationale's been made clear enough, but I think there's another agenda at work. Because you look at the Fed and you say, what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. But you have to look at who they are. And you look at Yellen and Fisher, and they say, you know, they're looking around saying, we don't have many months left. 
and there's going to be a new Fed and a Trump Fed. And so to the extent we can normalize things before we leave, that should be our task. And there's less than a year to do it. In doing that, how confident are you that what they put in place is going to stay in place? You mentioned the personnel change we're likely to see here over these next uh, few months. Does the, the guidance they're giving about the balance sheet unwind really matter if all of that could be uh, scrapped entirely when somebody else comes in? I don't think it matters a lot. I don't think dots mean anything a year from now. I don't think forecasts mean a lot. I think that the present players are the ones who have a few months left with their hands on the policy. And within a year, the likely person to be there is Jay Powell, and everybody else is gone. Yeah, one of your charms, besides putting the worm on my hook when we go fishing, (laughs) is you don't live in New York. You don't live in London. You live in a part of America that has huge income disparities. Dealing with the opioid epidemic, the heroin epidemic, whatever you want to call it. What do you observe in scenic Florida right now given a 2.1 or 2.3% GDP that David Kotak suggests is where we're heading. I live in a town with massive wealth inequality. Yeah, like One like, side, Longboat Key in the Bay. <clears throat> I live in a nice place. We have a nice view. Go half a mile, a mile half away. Half a mile. Yeah, very, uh, huge income inequality. That's m- true on both coasts. You see it more and more in the data, this widening mass. And we talk about tax cuts and tax rates. I don't hear a single politician saying, let's reduce permanently FICA, the employee withholding tax on the first $100,000 of every working person in America. I did that chart. I I almost got a death threat off of it a while back. But, I mean, David, what, what is so important here is you've had the courage over the year to attack outside things like bird flu. You you became an expert on in this or that. You're in an America that's struggling, not in the three zip codes David and I and Michael McKee um, live in. What is your take on the national battle over this heroin epidemic that we're doing. I think it's terrible. It's not being addressed. There are it's not no being policies. addressed. Like, no. It's the, off the I'm radar hearing from Senator says, Portman in Ohio on down to anybody. It's it, we're not talking about it. Yeah, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about those kinds of issues. It's a shame, Tom. But are they being talked about in Florida? I guess it's my ultimate question. Well, it, sure, people who will. But who's going to listen? You know, the, we're very much involved in Florida with uh, what to do about Cuba. Mm. Well, okay, Cuba's important, but I think the divide you mention is more important. Can I ask you what you value more at this point? Is it the soft data or the hard data we talk about? Which, which is catching up to what? Uh, but when you're looking, when you're trying to assess the health of this economy and uh, of this market, does one matter more than the other at this point? Uh, hugely hard data and obscure hard data that's high frequency more than opinions and assertions and collections of opinions and assertions. Hugely hard data. David Kotak, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. It's been way, way too uh, long. And yes, somebody emailed and yes, he does put the worm on (laughs) He buys these crawlers that have teeth on them. They're they're so (laughs) big. We're joined by Margaret Vestager. She is 
the EU Competition Commissioner, the woman behind the fine, levied against Google this morning, a 2.4 billion euro, 2.7 billion dollar fine, uh, focused here on Google's shopping service. Great to have you with us. Great to speak with you once again, uh, Madam Vestager. Let me, it's a let, pleasure to be with you. Let me ask you first of all here uh, about uh, of what you outlined uh, in your press conference and indeed uh, in, in the fine that was levied here as well. You said it's up to Google to find their way of complying with the order you've put in place today. What would you like to see the company do differently? How specific are you going to be in terms of your expectations? Well, what we expect is, of course, for Google to, to compete on the merits, uh, not to abuse its dominant position in, in general search to favor uh, Google Shopping and to demote um, rivals. Because competition on the merits, that's what serves competition and consumers best. Competition on the merits, this has been an investigation that's lasted for seven years. How much has Google Shopping changed over the course of your uh, investigation? Is it today different than it was when this investigation began? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, It has changed its name two times, and the appearance is also very different. Uh, What you see today is a much richer format than what you saw maybe uh, five years ago. Uh, and this is, of course, also one of the reasons why we leave it completely to Google to find a way to comply, because it is for Google to figure out how to do the format, how to do the display, how to do the equal treatment uh, in a way that suits uh, their technical solutions. What are the barriers to entry then, now, and in the future of others competing with Google in Denmark and the rest of Europe? Well, you know, in, in a market like uh, the digital market, of course, search in particular, uh, the barriers to entry, they are, they're quite high. Uh, because once you're in there, uh, if you're successful, well, then you, you get a lot of data, uh, you get a lot of visibility, uh, and therefore it, it also generates uh, more revenue, revenue that can be transferred into uh, making your services better, and therefore you can have a, a very, very promising circle. But others should have the chance to be uh, the next you. So do they speak. have that chance uh, now, Minister? Do they have that chance now? No. What we find today is that when uh, Google has given this sort of significantly better treatment to its own service by placing Google Shopping uh, box uh, on top of, uh, of your search results and demoting rivals on average to page four, well, then the visibility of rivals is almost uh, non-existent, and we have proven that visibility uh, and uh, and traffic, and therefore clicks and revenues, well, they are literally uh, two sides of the same coin. Very quickly here, how do you set the fine? How do you set a 2.4 billion euro fine? How do you come up with the number? Well, we have guidelines, and, and the, the level of the fine reflects that this has been going on since 2008 that a lot of markets are involved, and of course that but this is a, a, a very uh, abusive behavior. Uh, a lot of, uh, of, uh, of citizens and potential customers uh, has been affected and denied, denied the full benefits of competition, and, and that is reflected in the level of the fine. Margaret Vesco, too short with you today. Thank you very much uh, for the time. She's, of course, the EU European, uh, the, the European Competition Commissioner joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.